You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Howard Dory. And I'm Jess Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America. Join us as we dive deep into topics like... The undeniable ribs of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder... John, John Adams? Adams? Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us. Find out more at plodpod.com. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 203. Up until this point we have spent most of our episodes on the Russian Civil War talking about the Communists, or the Reds, and their place within Civil War Russia. In this episode we are going to discuss two other important events. The first will be the rise of the White Movement, from its earliest moments during the First World War until its almost catastrophic collapse at the gates of Ekaterinodar. During this time, the Whites were a growing movement, a very slowly growing movement, and were not yet the threat to the Communists that they would become in 1919. During that year, the Whites would be a serious threat, advancing out of southern Russia to within 240 miles of Moscow. But that was in the future, and during the period of late 1917 to early 1918, the White Movement in southern Russia was under serious threat of falling apart entirely before it even really got going. The second topic for today will be the Western intervention in the Russian Civil War. The actions of the Western nations during the Civil War period would occupy many discussions near the end of the Paris Peace Conference, the conference that would result in the official end of the First World War. Many of these discussions revolved around the Western, what the Western powers could do to halt the spread of Bolshevism. Eventually, these discussions would result in military interventions with multiple military expeditions launched by the British, French, Americans, and Japanese. The results of these expeditions would be, and I'm being generous here, less than inspiring to the great detriment of the white cause. The white movement had its roots in 1917, the year of the revolutions. After the February Revolution, some within the army, and especially its higher-level commanders, started to lay the groundwork for a possible resistance to the new socialist leaders in Petrograd. Key among these was General Alexiev, who had been the chief of staff of the Russian army, and the person making most of the key decisions after 1915. He would plan for a possible resistance to be led by former military officers in the Don region of southern Russia, near modern-day Ukraine. These early steps were important because it allowed for future white leaders, first Kornilov and then Denikin, to arrive at a reasonably acceptable base of operations. 
It would also provide a known area for officers who wanted to leave the red-controlled areas of the country to flee to. Also present in the Don region were the Cossacks, and there is not a single group or person, not Alexiev, Denikin, Kolchak, or the British, Americans, or French, that were more important to the white movement and more responsible for whatever success that it had than the Cossacks. To put it another way, in the early years of the Civil War, the white cause could not have existed in southern Russia or anywhere else without the support of the Cossacks. Then later, once the whites were stronger, their armies would have been barely functional without the Cossack officers and recruits that filled their ranks. There were many groups of Cossacks in southern Russia. The Don and Kuban Cossacks were the most important to the whites. The Kuban Cossacks were made up of two older groups of Cossacks that had merged together, and they were mostly farmers. However, they were generally richer than the non-Cossack farmers around them, and they were also generally better educated. This meant that there was a kind of us-versus-them mentality in the Cossacks' lands, with the Cossacks themselves being generally more privileged and the non-Cossacks being treated as a lower class, an arrangement that would cause many problems. Much like with the other, more well-off people in Russia, the Kuban Cossacks did not like the idea of Bolshevik control, and they were able to support the white movement because the Kuban region, being the furthest from the core of Russia, was not seen as a huge threat, at least initially, by the Reds. This is one reason that the white movement was so successful in Kuban in the early Civil War period, and really it wouldn't have been able to happen otherwise, because in Kuban the Cossacks were generally less organized and unified than they were in the Don region. In the Don region, the situation would be mostly the same from a Cossack versus non-Cossack perspective, but here they would have a relatively strong series of leaders. In early 1918, they would elect an Ottoman, which was the title for the leader of the Don Cossacks, and this election would be the first since 1723. During that election, they would name Kaladin as the Ottoman, uh, as the leader of the Don Cossacks, and Kaladin and the others within the Don Cossack leadership would create a truly independent Don government. But this action required bringing in the non-Cossack citizens of the region, a very contentious issue, with many Cossacks being strongly against any weakening of Cossack exceptionalism in the new nation. Eventually, due to the support of Kaladin, the measure passed, and the non-Cossacks would be allowed inside the government. Kaladin believed that this was absolutely necessary, because the Cossacks were not actually a majority in the Don region. During the 1917 Constituent Assembly elections, the Cossacks had received just 45% of the vote in the area, and ruling with a minority was always challenging. The new Cossack government would be in power briefly after the capture of Rostov, and it was at Rostov in December, on December 9, 1917, that one of, if not the, first real battle of the Russian Civil War took place. Initially, the Cossacks could not take the city from the Red Guards defending it, but then Alexeev and about 450 white officers arrived, and they were able to tip the balance. This provided the white leaders from an, with enough support within the Cossacks to allow them a safe haven, although it would be very short-lived. While the white cause was dependent on the Cossacks, and the Cossacks would be helped immensely by the leadership and military experience of the white officers, neither side worked with the other perfectly. There were two mostly interrelated problems with their relationship. The first was that neither side truly admitted to the other how dependent they were on each other. Both saw the others as a means to an end, for the whites the recapturing of all of Russia, for the Cossacks a path to independence. 
The second problem was that the white leaders totally misunderstood many of the actions of the Cossack leaders. Actions that they saw as vanity, like the insistence on independent Cossack commands, were actually critical to the Cossack leaders maintaining control and support of their people. As was so often the case for the whites, this misunderstanding of the political circumstances in the area would lead to disastrous decision after disastrous decision. In late 1918, there were many decisions to make about who would lead the white army in southern Russia. There were primarily two candidates, General Alexeyev and General Kornilov. Alexeyev had been critical in putting in place the infrastructure and coordinating the movement of officers to the Don region to consolidate the power of the white movement. He also had better connections to leaders outside the country and within the Cossack areas. However, Kornilov had far more support among the officers that were actually present in the White Army in late 1917. Kornilov had been the leader of the March on Petrograd in July 1917, which had cemented his position as a leader of the counter-revolutionary army. When Kornilov threatened to leave and take all those loyal with him to Siberia, Alexeyev was forced to acquiesce. They eventually agreed that Kornilov would lead the army and Alexeyev would be the political leader, a relationship that never really worked well. Both men wanted to be the leader and neither had the support to actually do so. While the leadership was in flux, there had always been the hope among both leaders that their cause would find a wellspring of support among former Russian officers, but this did not really materialize. Only about 75 volunteers were arriving every day in the last week of 1917, a far cry from what was hoped, and by mid-January the army would contain only about 3,000 men. It was becoming apparent that many former officers just wanted peace instead of jumping into yet another war. This forced the white leaders to look to other methods of bolstering their forces, specifically conscription, a practice that would grow in scope as the conflict expanded. This meant that as time went by, the name of the army, the Volunteer Army, as they called themselves, became a greater and greater farce. As I mentioned earlier, one of the first white victories was in the taking of Rostov with the help of the Cossacks, and this success would soon be undone. Just a few weeks after the city had been taken, a stronger Red Army contingent arrived and pushed back the combined Cossack and white forces out of the city. At this point, General Kornilov would make a fateful decision. With the white forces and the Don Cossacks being overwhelmed by the Red Army, Kornilov believed the only option was to retreat. With the white forces preparing to leave and his ability to resist the Red Army alone quickly evaporating, on February 20th, Adam and Kaladin committed suicide. With the decision to retreat, the volunteer army embarked on what would be called the legendary Kuban Ice March. From late February until early April, the White Army would move south, pursued by Red forces. They were low on supplies, they did not feel that they could pause very long at any point in the journey to either consolidate or rest, and the number one imperative was just to keep moving, to the point where wounded and sick members of the army were left behind. It was also, of course, winter. While in southern Russia it was not the Russian winter that many may have heard of, it was still quite cold and wet in a very unpleasant environment. They would begin the march with around 4,000 soldiers and 1,000 civilians, but by the end there would just be 3,000 soldiers remaining. The destination for the army was the Kuban, where they hoped to gain the support of the Kuban Cossacks. When they arrived, they found that the Reds were already occupying several key areas, but they hoped that the Cossack capital, Ekaterinodar, was still in friendly hands, and so they moved in that direction. 
At a railway station on the way, which the whites assaulted in the hopes of capturing supplies, they learned that this was not the case, and in fact the capital had been lost to red forces. Without the ability to assault the capital with just white forces, Kornilov was able to meet up with a Cossack leader by the name of Pofrosky, and he led a unit of about 3,000 men, roughly the same as the number that Kornilov had. The Cossacks were eager to work together, until they were told that the white leaders expected complete subservience from all of the Cossacks. This almost caused the budding reliance of the two groups, who were hopelessly outnumbered in enemy territory, to fall apart. But it finally got settled down, because eventually both sides would see how important joining their two armies together actually was, and after the whites drastically reduced their demands, the two would work together to try and retake Ekaterinodar. With the two groups of soldiers, there were roughly 6,000 troops marking, marching towards the city. This was still a very risky move. The whites would not have a numerical advantage in the attack, and if it failed, it could mean the end of the entire movement. If it was successful, though, it could provide the whites with a valuable central base of operation that would greatly assist their efforts. On the first day of the attacks, they were a complete failure. But Kornilov decided to pause for a day, let his men rest, and then continue on the day after. However, on April 13th, before this could happen, the house that he was using as a headquarters was hit by enemy artillery, and Kornilov was killed. Command of the army then fell to General Denikin. Denikin had spoken out against the attacks before they had been launched, and the failures of the first day had solidified his opinion that the attacks were poorly conceived and likely to fail. Using his new power as leader of the white forces, he then called off the attack, and the white army once again retreated. A few weeks later, the army would be in a position very similar to where it had been before the attack had been launched, stuck in the borderlands between the Don and Kuban Cossacks, and without a clear path forward. Dinikin had been born to a family of serfs, but had been given to the army by his family's lord. He would spend the rest of his life in the army, slowly rising up the ranks until he found himself in command of all of the white forces in southern Russia. He would prove to be the best military leader that the white movement would have during the Civil War, but he would also face problems that Kornilov and Alexiev, who would die in October 1918, had been able to mostly ignore. These were almost all political questions. The white movement was one created almost entirely by Russian army officers, and they would lead the movement through the Civil War, and many wanted Denikin to publicly support the return of the monarchy. Denikin would always speak strongly against this, insisting that the fate of Russia should be decided by a fairly elected constituent assembly. This was an important stance for him to take, because it allowed him to avoid having to make some definitive statements about what the fate of Russia should be. Definitive statements, other than the fact that the Reds were bad, were always bound to alienate some piece of the very fragile white coalition. One item that we discussed last episode that Denikin would support was the idea of a great, united, undivided Russia. I think this is worth revisiting just for a moment due to what we know about the white situation in late spring 1918. The white leaders would maintain that they only supported a Russia which controlled all of its previously held territory, while at this exact same moment, they were wholly dependent on support from the Cossacks, whose primary goal was to break away from Russia and form some sort of independent nation. These views were incompatible, a continuing problem for the whites. They were forced into the majority non-Russian areas of the empire, while the Reds held the center where the majority of the people were Russian, even though they held views that were not exactly palatable to those non-Russian minorities.
I'm Howard Dory. And I'm Jess Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America. The only history podcast where you'll hear never-before-shared stories and details about Thomas Jefferson's deadly ram and the truth about John Quincy Adams and the mole people. Yes! So join us for our newest season premiering February 13th, just in time for President's Day. We're diving into topics like how the first third party in America was founded by murder. Ah, murder. The undeniable riz of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder, John John Adams? Adams. You make him sound like a vampire. So whether you love history or you're lying to yourself, Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us. Find out more and dive into previous bingeable seasons at plodpod.com. Back in the Don region, the Cossack leaders scattered and the Red Army was left in control of their capital. The communists would set up a new Soviet government in the region. When this Soviet was formed, it resorted to violent oppression to try and guarantee some support, and this proved to be a mistake. It may have been possible to create some kind of coalition against the Cossacks, with the non-Cossack urban citizens being a key part of that coalition, but this was not the path that the Soviet chose. Instead, the Soviet angered both the urban proletariat and and the rural Cossacks, and therefore quickly lost control. A rebellion began, and by May that rebellion would take over the region almost entirely, and a new Ottoman, Krasnov, would be at its head. Krasnov would be able to call upon an army of 17,000 men, although they were generally of poor quality in both equipment and training. But crucially, Krasnov would enjoy the support of almost all of the Kuban Cossacks, support that Kaladin had not enjoyed. And Krasnov had another crucial ally, Germany. All of these events that we've discussed so far were happening in early and mid-1918, and they were happening while the First World War was still ongoing in the West. In Berlin, the Germans decided that the best thing that could happen for their interest in the post-war era, an era that they hoped to create with the spring 1918 offensive, was a divided Russia. They therefore took actions to try and keep Russia divided, and this meant helping some of the areas stay out of red control. In April, German troops would occupy all of Ukraine, with the primary goal of requisitioning food and shipping it back home. But this occupation had the very useful side effect of being able to support an anti-Red government in the country. They would then also extend their support into the Don region, giving their support in both arms, supplies, and information to Krasnov and the Cossacks. This support would completely reverse the situation in the Don region, and in the other areas of southern Russia as well. Before the German troops arrived, the Reds had been on the offensive and had almost taken control over the entire area. After the German troops arrived, the Reds would be thrown out and into disarray. At the same time, the anti-Red forces in German-controlled areas would flourish. The growth in his relative strength would cause Krasnov to advance into formerly Red territory and to then continue that advance towards Tsaritsyn. Tsaritsyn was an important railway center on the Volga. When they arrived after several attacks, the Cossacks were unable to capture the city. In hindsight, the importance of this specific battle is debatable. Even at the time, its importance to the Civil War and the Red and White causes was up for debate. 
Some communist leaders, like Stalin, would say that it was a critical point in the war, while others, like Trotsky, believed that it was really just another battle, early on, without huge stakes. Part of this evaluation from the two leaders was due to the role that they each played in the fighting, with Stalin far more involved in the area at this time. Stalin would think so highly of the defense of Tsaritsyn that when it came time to rename the city, he would bestow upon Tsaritsyn its far more famous name, Stalingrad. We now turn our eyes to the relationship between the Allies and Russia. In this context, the countries grouped under the term Allies are most of the countries that fought against Germany during the war, minus Russia, of, of course. During the Civil War period, several of these countries would take actions to influence the Civil War occurring in Russia, but they were often uncoordinated actions. In many ways, these actions and the decisions that led to them echoed the fragmentations of the Whites in the various corners of Russia. Between 1917 and 1923, there would be two phases of Allied relations with Russia. During the first phase, the Allies would attempt to militarily intervene in the Civil War against the Communists. Even though several countries agreed to do this, the exact form of their intervention would vary greatly, being both geographically and chronologically spread out. This would result in several ineffective military expeditions. After the failure of these expeditions, the Allies would then move into the second phase of their reactions to the Civil War. During this phase, they would come to accept the communist government and move forward to recognizing and reforming relations with the new government. The signing of trade agreements were often the hallmark of the move towards the second phase. Before they would begin the reconciliation process, the Allies first had to attempt to intervene. In 1918, this intervention was greatly hindered by a small event that you may have heard of called the First World War. While this reduced their ability to intervene and greatly reduced the number of troops and supplies available for such actions, it also altered the type and goals of the expeditions. During early 1918, the actions of the Allies were focused not just on supporting the anti-communist forces in Russia, but also with the hope that it would allow the Eastern Front to be reopened. As the war began to wind down and then end, the resources and troops did become available, which led to many questions about if they should be committed to an anti-communist war, and if so, when and where. The British, French, Americans, and Japanese were still committed to supporting the white forces, but they divided Russia into their own areas of concern instead of focusing on united action. The French would take Ukraine and the Crimea, the British northern Russia and the Caucasus, and the Americans and Japanese were given eastern Russia. These areas lined up with each country's strategic concerns, but it meant that they were geographically separated, which meant the resulting disjointed efforts were almost inevitable. Many of the efforts by the Allies would not achieve their goals, but that did not mean that they did not have an effect. The Communists would seize on the Allied intervention very early as a way to rally support to their cause. As early as July 1918, Lenin would say, quote, What we are involved in is a systematic, methodical, and evidently long-planned military and financial counter-revolutionary campaign against the Soviet Republic, which all of the representatives of the Anglo-French imperialism have been preparing for months. Lenin was not saying anything false in these statements. However, over the coming months and years, the communists would certainly use the Allied intervention to their advantage. Even though the interventions did not have any drastic effects on the military situation, the communists could still use them. It provided the communists with the ability to claim that they, and certainly not the whites, were fighting for an independent Russia. They could claim that the whites were just puppets of the western imperialist capitalists. 
The ability to claim this, and with Allied military units on Russian soil, the ability to claim it truthfully, brought many Russians over to the communist side during the Civil War. That did not mean that they were suddenly supporters of communism, but Russian nationalism was still a strong force within the country, including within communist-controlled areas, and especially in the Old Army, and its officers would join the Red Army in record numbers in late 1918. I've already mentioned several times now that the Allied interventions were almost entirely ineffective, but I have been pretty light on details. The French would send forces to the Black Sea port of Odessa in December 1918, about a month after the war on the Western Front ended. The white forces, by this point under the command of General Denikin, were very excited to have the French in the area, though they hoped that what they saw was just a vanguard of a much larger force. Eventually, a total of 12,000 French, Greek, and other Allied troops would be sent to the country. These troops were not exactly thrilled to be in Russia, with many wanting nothing more than to go home, and this resulted in very low morale, poor discipline, and an almost non-existent will to fight. In the middle of March 1919, these troops would experience their first combat. They would meet a red, the Red Army near the town of Kyrsten and Nikolaev. In this first engagement, the Allied troops held their own, but their performance was not spectacular and after an inconclusive day of fighting, they would retreat back to Odessa, where the French commander would proclaim martial law inside the city. This allowed the French commander, General d'Assam, who had never had good relations with the white leaders in the city, to set up a new government that he hand-picked. A few days later, a new French commander would arrive, General Franchette d'Espray, who we've encountered several times before in our story, and he would put in place yet another new government, and he would also bring with him fresh troops. By this point, Denikin and the Whites were both confused and angry that their leadership was not being acknowledged in the region, but they were very happy to have more French troops in the area. But then on April 2nd, it was decided that all of the French troops would be evacuated, and the French military presence would be on its ships in less than 48 hours, and then they would be gone. The only positive side effect for the Whites was that the French left behind a good portion of their materiel and supplies. The French would also send troops to the Crimean port of Sebastopol. Here they experienced the same amount of political problems as in Odessa. The anti-Bolshevik groups, the socialist liberals and members of the volunteer army, could not agree on how to control the area. The government that was in place, led by the army, was seen as far too authoritarian by the socialists, who were members of the Menshevik and SR parties, and so they threatened to leave. There would also be widespread strikes in the city, in protest of the government's practices. Instead of loosening their grip, the army leaders decided to crack down even harder to try and take more control. This then sent the entire area into a spiral of unrest and violence, with the workers being strong enough to resist the government but not strong enough to overthrow it, and the army-led government strong enough to not be overthrown by the, by the workers but not strong enough to fully control them. Meanwhile, the French walked into the situation and then tried to address it and then just kind of gave up. The French presence in the city would only last until April 1919, when they would pack up and leave. This evacuation would coincide with the arrival of Red Troops, who after negotiations told the French that they would not attack if the French government guaranteed to leave. And so the French left. In the Caucasus, the British would also attempt to intervene, and here they would work with some of the local governments, like the Menshevik government in Georgia, Unfortunately for the Volunteer Army and the Whites, the British would guarantee the new Georgian government from white aggression. This guarantee would be tested shortly after it was given, with Denikin moving in to try and squash a rebellion. When news of Denikin's advance was received by the British, they did nothing. 
making it clear to everyone in the area that they were actually quite powerless to actually enforce their demands in the region, a problem that would be experienced by the British and French in many areas of the world after the war. Another area that would see the British taking a more active involvement was in northern Russia, specifically the ports of Murmansk and Archangel. They were sent in, ostensibly, to guard military supplies that had been on their way to the provisional government when it had been overthrown. However, they would then stay in the areas while Russia descended into full-on civil war. The troops here were not the highest quality, and the expeditionary force was made up of soldiers who were not qualified for duty on the Western Front for physical or medical reasons. Low morale was also a problem for these troops, just like for the French, and after garrisoning the city for several months, the British government decided that the troops should be pulled out in March 1919. It took some time to make the arrangements, but all of the British troops would be out of the country by October 12, 1919. The final set of Allied intervention would be the Americans and Japanese in Siberia. I'm going to hold off on that story for right now due to how far separated all of that action is from the core fighting of the Civil War that we are discussing in this episode. When looking at the whole of the Allied intervention, at least militarily, the results were certainly lackluster. There were many reasons for this, overall war weariness, the economic downturns after the war, the already high levels of debt within the Allied governments, but most of all there was just not the political will to really go all in on defeating the communists. There would be a growing understanding throughout 1919 and 1920 within the Allied governments that they simply did not have the power to successfully intervene in Russia. The British and French could not do so politically, given the states of their countries after a long and costly war, and the Americans just didn't care enough. The reasons for the slow slide back from intervention to more normalcy is best described by Lloyd George as part of the discussions at the Paris Peace Conference in April 1919. He would say, quote, If we conquered Russia, and we could conquer it, you would be surprised at the military advice which is given to us as to the number of men that would be required, and I should like to know where they would come from. But supposing you had them, supposing you gathered together an overwhelming army and you captured Russia, what manner of government are you going to set up there? You must set up a government which the people want, otherwise it will be an outrage of all of the principles for which we have fought in this war. Does anyone know for what government they would ask? And if it is a government we do not like, are we to reconquer Russia in order to give, get a government that we do like? End quote. While this would represent the beginning of the end of Allied military intervention, they would still try to support the white cause with supplies and other more readily available items like weapons. This support would be far more valuable for the Whites than the minuscule military assistance that was provided, and the material support certainly extended the Civil War. What the White forces did with that support, and how they applied the manpower that they did have, will be our topic of the next two episodes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week for Episode 4 on the Russian Civil War.